How's it going, everybody? Back here for another podcast. We have Dr. Mark Goodman from Desert Orthopedics. We're going to be talking about regenerative uh, interventions and orthobiologics, basically ways to ideally try to kickstart healing, tissue regrowth, in non-operative uh, manners. So before we get into that, just a couple updates on things. Um, if you haven't listened to the most recent podcast, we had Nick Torres, the manual man, talking about posture and breathing. Super interesting. Go over some exercises related to how to ideally restore breathing and functional patterns, which can help with posture and loading and movement. Uh, the other recent podcast was discussing the ideas of cumulative effects of dysfunction, how injuries 20, 30 years ago add up to subsequent injuries and greater dysfunctions that then lead to your back going out or your Achilles tearing, whatever the scenario may be. So just going over how insignificant injuries can build and how we can ideally try to nip that in the butt before we get to it. Um, but for who we got today, again, we got Dr. Mark Goodman. Uh, he, again, at works at Desert Orthopedics. He did his undergraduate training at Oregon State University, did his medical school at Oregon Health and Science University. He completed his residency at the University of Utah and did a fellowship and a sub-special training in sports medicine at the University of Utah as well. He's worked with a bunch of high-level athletes. Um, he also works with your average Joe as well does a lot of kind of the ski Olympic sport athlete niche. Um, he specializes in the diagnosis and non-operative treatment of acute injuries, including, and chronic injuries, including the shoulder, knee, and hip. Uh, and he's actually just a really easy guy to talk to, kind of interesting to hear his insights on where he thinks we stand currently with these types of interventions, what kind of the future holds for some of these procedures to ideally manage conditions that currently are difficult, such as high-grade osteoarthritis. Um, and we try to talk about a topic where if you really want to get into the nuts and bolts with it, it's pretty a high-level scientific topic. So I really appreciated the way that he was able to try to simplify some of this stuff so we all can kind of stick with him and understand how maybe one might utilize PRP um, versus other different interventions and kind of the why behind the interventions and also probably equally as important as what happens afterwards to ensure that these regenerative uh, interventions have optimal long-term results. So hope you enjoy. Uh, again, I appreciate him taking the time and uh, more fun content to come. Dr. Goodman, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. I'm excited to talk with you about something I wouldn't say I'm an expert in, so I'm excited to learn from you, kind of the ideas of regenerative medicine and orthobiologics. But um, before we get into that, can you just give us a little rundown of kind of where you're practicing currently, how you got there, what are some of your like passion or, or niches? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. So I am in Bend, Oregon. I'm trained in emergency medicine and sports medicine, but spend most of my time doing sports medicine these days. So uh, I did fellowship training after residency, both in Salt Lake City, Utah, and have been in Bend here for about uh, seven years or so now. I'm from Central Oregon originally, so it was always kind of my idea to try and get back to, to Central Oregon. And I'm pretty excited that it finally worked out. So I specialize in the non-surgical treatment of musculoskeletal complaints. So I kind of see almost everything um, in a musculoskeletal realm and try and treat that 
non-surgically as much as possible. Um, my kind of interests at this point are pretty diverse, but have developed into a few things. So ultrasound and ultrasound guided procedures. Um, so ultrasound for diagnostics and then ultrasound guided interventions is something that I have done a lot of training in and have a lot of interest in. Uh, regenerative medicine and orthobiologics, which we're going to talk a little bit more about today is something that I'm pretty fascinated with and have, has become a pretty large and growing part of my practice. And then uh, kind of a side niche and spinoff project I've been working on with a group called Wild Health, where we're doing some more genomics-based personalized and preventative medicine focusing on health optimization. So tying that back in, not only to athletes, but to just you know population in general, people who are trying to be more active and who want to be more active. Um, and, and with those, I think I, I kind of work a lot with um, masters and aging athletes. And I feel like that's become another niche for me as well. And maybe yeah. that's because I'm, I'm becoming one. And um, so <laughs> I have my, some self-interest in yeah. that as well. Yeah. So uh, that's, yeah, a, yeah. So a broad, a broad group of interests. So how'd you, how'd you get into that? Like, did you go into medical school knowing you didn't want to be a surgeon, but wanted to get into a similar field or how did it all come about? So I didn't particularly know what I wanted to do in yeah. medical school. Um, I think like a lot of medical students, I liked different parts of everything. Uh-huh. And I found myself really fascinated with the integration of these different systems and how they affect kind of the person as a whole. So I found a home in emergency medicine where I, I felt like I could integrate that knowledge, but do it kind of in a very quick, fast paced environment. And during my emergency medicine residency, I realized that I also like the idea of kind of having a little bit more of a niche where I could focus in on and kind of became fascinated with this idea of the expert generalist, you know, where you can tie in things from multiple different fields, but have a kind of a wide reaching knowledge base where instead of just being, you know, someone who only sees knees and does knee stuff and does the same procedure over and over, I liked being able to see kind of a diverse group of patients have undifferentiated patients where they're maybe a little bit more tricky to figure out and try and sort through things diagnostically and then come up with the, the right intervention to hopefully get it better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one question I have is how does the relationship between you and the, the surgeons work? Is it like, do you sometimes go in and do some of these regenerative techniques during a surgery or is it uh, let's say they had surgery or they have a history of surgery and it's not working and then they refer you into it or how does the like collaboration between your intervention skill set and then we'll say whatever the knee surgeon or whoever it may be you know I feel like um, I'm really fortunate with the group yeah. that I work with and band I, I have some great surgeons that I work with I respect their opinion um, and I think we have a really good collaborative relationship where I feel very comfortable running stuff by them and vice versa. So yeah. there are certainly things that require surgery and where yeah. surgery is definitely the right option. And there are other things that the, you know, the diagnosis isn't quite made or the pain is, you know, somehow doesn't fit the pathology that we're seeing on MRI, or maybe the patient isn't a great candidate for surgery. And in that case, maybe there's something I can offer, but yeah. most of my time is spent in clinic and, and we have a special ultrasound and procedure room as well as kind of orthobiologics room that we do a lot of our PRP based treatments. in. so I'm spending my time there. I don't, I don't venture into the OR unless the yeah. things were really bad, but I haven't <laughs> been, been in the operating room in a long time. So then are you getting direct referrals then? Like people are coming to you cause you know, you offer these interventions. Um, yeah, both. I, I think, um, more and more I'm seeing patients from the community and people who are coming in from out of town who yeah. 
are looking to kind of maximize non-surgical options, but for whatever problem they're dealing with, or I'm also seeing patients in the clinic, um, you know, that are referred from our surgeons that have maybe something they feel like would be better addressed with my skill set. Yeah. Yeah. Then I got another kind of general practice question here is how is the, the insurance side of things going with regenerative medicine? Is it improving? Like, do you think in the next five years, more things will be covered because you're ideally being more proactive and ahead of the game versus waiting until something's so bad that you have to have a more invasive procedure done or like, are things still mostly cash-based now or how does, yeah. What's the current, yeah, re- you know, status? really, yeah. Hard to say what the future yeah. holds for some of these regenerative treatments. Um, at the current time, all these are considered experimental. So they are cash pay. I think there's a good argument to be made for making them kind of part of standard reimbursement. But at this point that hasn't happened, but you know, every, every week and every month, there's more and more data on the proper techniques and indications for these treatments and where they're most applicable. So I think over time, you know, we're certainly gaining ground there, Okay. uh, but we're not there yet. Okay. Okay. So most people are paying some form of cash or if their insurance covers it, it's not all of it. Is that, yeah insurance yeah. Isn't, isn't covering any of the any, yeah, any of these, these things at this got point. it okay nope. um all right let's get let's get into it a little bit so before we get into specific questions on maybe what are some interventions you're doing can you help me define some things just so we have a, a baseline here of like what is regenerative medicine we keep saying that what's your what does that entail sure so i i think of regenerative medicine as being more of um kind of a philosophy of intervention. So, you know, in orthopedics and musculoskeletal medicine, we've typically reached for things like steroids commonly to address common musculoskeletal pathology. Um, It's become a little bit of a band-aid where if there's pain, we kind of put a steroid on it. And for some things that's definitely appropriate, but also I think we're recognizing that each patient is unique in the pathology and how they present. And from a patient centered standpoint, maybe there's not a one size fits all approach to fixing these problems. So looking at something like, let's, let's take arthritis, which is, you know, a really common part of my practice and what we're seeing, there's multiple different phenotypes of arthritis, right? So there's inflammatory arthritis, there's arthritis related to an old injury. So post-traumatic arthritis, there's things that you see in your PT practice with people with really bad biomechanics and who are overloading cartilage based on their biomechanics. So you can't approach all those patients differently. Each requires a separate set of interventions to get them better. Now, at a lot of times they've kind of progressed and ended up at the same end state where they've got end state, stage away, but it doesn't mean that you can't kind of walk that back in a systematic way to hopefully get that person better. Yeah. So when we talk about regenerative medicine, instead of maybe just putting a steroid in and hoping to kind of treat pain and decrease inflammation, the idea is, we're going to try and actually um, create a healing environment for that cartilage to either stabilize or to heal over time. So when you talk about arthritis, the other thing that we use regenerative treatments for commonly is for tendon injuries or tendinopathy. And we know more and more that when we look at the pathophysiology of tendinitis, it's probably not truly inflammatory, that this is more of a disordered healing effect on tendons over time. So if you, let's see, 
you know, got a patient who is an ultra runner who has a bad Achilles tendon and they've had it for five years that they've kind of Mm -hmm. run through, but had smoldering pain. Well, it's unlikely there's a lot of inflammation there. And we think more and more that's disordered collagen healing over time. So the approach of an anti-inflammatory like a steroid might not make the most sense. So instead going in, inducing a new injury, creating some an environment where that tissue has a chance to heal using cellular products or biologic therapies makes a lot more sense. And I think we're seeing that more and more in the literature when you select the right patient and the right treatment, people tend to do better. And then do you try to have that conversation with clients about like, what is the cause of this? So like, let's just say you have this obese lady who's not active and you use the best regenerative technique there is it's probably all going to come back unless you get to maybe what the source of the dysfunction truly was. Do you try to have that conversation or is that hard to discuss? Yes. I mean, the, the answer is, <laughs> yeah. is both, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, more and more I'm, I'm trying to bring lifestyle and yeah. diet and exercise into the conversation because I think it's, it's really the big thing that we've been ignoring in medicine for a long time is that, like you said, you know, if we, we fix the knee arthritis, we can't necessarily fix the systemic inflammation, the mechanical overload related to obesity, the, um, you know, dietary habits, the lack of excess, all these different things that are going to have profound and wide reaching health effects beyond yeah. just a joint that we're focused on. Um, so, you know, I do try and do that. It's a delicate conversation, certainly, but I've found that um, when approached the right way, patients tend to be really receptive, like people that are metabolically unhealthy and overweight, a lot of them, they know that and they don't want to be that way. And they're looking for an advocate and ally to help them get healthier. And I think when you present it in that light and not as a judgment, but I'm here to help and what can I do? um, That conversation can be one of the most rewarding parts of my job. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm the same way. When I was a, a younger clinician, I used to just like try to be all cocky and give quick fixes and say, I'm the reason why they're better. And I'm so glad you found me and all that stuff. But really, I mean, these days, majority of my conversations are like, are you sleeping? What are are you eating? Are you drinking water? What's your stress level like? Where I think those quality of life things play a much bigger deal than whatever, how mobile your hip is or whatever the scenario may be. Um, And I think these days, maybe more than you can maybe vouch this more than five to 10 years ago, people are more receptive to like, talk about stress and diet and whatever, fill in the blank on other things. But, um, and I think you're offering interventions that are incredibly valuable and whatever technique someone's going for, I think that conversation has to be had, which is tough, but if you get them to buy in, that's the the long-term solution. Um, Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a combination and I I usually kind of pitch this as it's a multi-pronged approach, right? Like, so we, we need to do a couple things to get your pain better so we can get you moving. And if we can get you moving, we can make you feel better. And if you start eating better and moving, then your pain is going to improve. And, you know, sometimes that that's a steroid injection, right? You know, that that, I don't, I don't feel bad about doing that if that's what's going to get someone to progress through rehab or help them kind of start a new exercise program to control their symptoms. Because I think the end result is worth it, even if it is kind of the band-aid or quick fix potentially. But I try and have that conversation at the same time I'm applying one of those treatments. Yeah. 
And then where we live, it's usually the opposite issue or someone's over-exercising <laughs> or yeah, working out twice a day, or maybe they don't need to be running 20 miles five times a week. You know, those, the other yeah. end of the spectrum. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think those patients are um, more challenging in a lot of ways to yeah. deal with um, because yeah. prescribing rest is, um, tends to be really challenging for some of the hard charging type A personalities that yep. I think we, we both see. Um, so give me some specifics. So like, what are some common uh, regenerative medicine or orthobiologics you're using in clinic these days? And so orthobiologics, I think, encompasses a broad range of things. Yeah. And so the, the question that always comes up in my clinic is stem cell treatments. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's probably something we should touch on. Yes. So currently there are no FDA approved stem cell treatments in the United States. So I just, I get that out there. Like I, anyone, I feel like if you're going to some stem cell clinic, it's unlikely that you're actually getting stem cells. Actually, it's probably very likely you're not getting live stem cells. Um, what now are there are all sorts then? of, yeah, that, so that's the, that's the question. Yeah. So the FDA regulates really firmly on expanding or manipulating human tissue. And so stem cell falls into that. Now, there are a couple of things that we can do that work on the same kind of pathway potentially. And that mostly has to do with mesenchymal signaling cells or MSCs is what these are called. Okay. Um, so MSCs are found primarily, the, the most accessible places are in bone marrow and fat. And so you can harvest these MSCs from both the fat or the bone marrow and then re-inject them to hopefully create a healing response. And the idea behind this is that these MSCs aren't necessarily stem cells. So it's not like you're taking this fat cell, putting it in your knee and it's becoming your cartilage and then your knee looks like it did when it yeah. was 20. Yeah. Uh, the idea is that you're creating this paracrine signaling. So you're taking this fat derived mesenchymal stem cell, you're putting it into the knee and that's then telling the other cells around it to differentiate and to create a less inflammatory, more pro healing environment that can decrease some of the MMPs, some of the pro-destructive enzymes that we're seeing that go along with inflammation, arthritis, and cartilage damage. And so that that's progressed over the last couple of years based on a lot of work that Arnold Kaplan has done. And we're kind of moving away from calling those stem cells because we think they're more signaling cells and actual progenitor yeah. cells that are acting directly. And so we can uh, go about that a couple different ways The my preferred technique now. And I think what the data supports most is using adipose derived or fat derived MSCs. And okay. the reason for that is because over time, your bone marrow actually contains less of these mesenchymal signaling or stem cells. Uh, so as you age, you're unlikely to get as much kind of viable cellular tissue from bone marrow as you are from fat potentially. And when we're using these interventions, it's typically for degenerative change in older patients. So the, the process involves taking fat out of around the abdominal area. We're minimally manipulating that. So the fat is then washed and then spun down in a centrifuge and then re-injected back into the patient the same day. This is from the same patient on the same day. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the, the new... Um, or newer orthobiologic product that we're doing more of. Now, okay. that's been around for 10 plus years, but it's gaining more ground and there's more and more studies. I think there's between 60 and 80 studies now primarily in, in arthritis showing some benefits in both pain and function over time, as well as a pretty good safety profile. Okay. Um, 
So if I was trying to recap what you said there is like you put in these adipose cells and do they almost act like like a magnet of like drawing in stem-like cells from what's currently in the joint to help regrow tissues or how would I, am I way it's, off there? <laughs> no, so multiple, multiple different effects that these yeah. cells are proposed to have. Um, but a okay. lot of it has to do with paracrine signaling. So okay. releasing cytokines and growth factors from that Got cell, it. which is okay. signaling nearby cells to migrate to that area, but also changing the um, expression of other chondrocytes and cells nearby. Okay. And, and so that's the, the kind of end result. Now, on one end of the spectrum, so that that's kind of the the middle ground. The yeah. the precursor to that that we're typically reaching for is PRP or platelet-rich plasma, which yeah. um, at this point has been around for quite a while. It's certainly less expensive, has a good safety and efficacy profile when used correctly. And in my mind, the the big indications for PRP where it really shines are people that are younger with kind of low to moderate grade knee arthritis. They're nowhere near needing a knee replacement, but yeah. they're not also at a place where you're going to want to do repetitive kind of salvage steroid injections yeah. in order to get them moving. And some good data there showing that compared head to head with steroid, there's some benefit in pain and function at 12 months. And the, the PRP group is composed to the proposed compared to the steroid group. So um, I think that's something I'm recommending more and more for those younger kind of healthy patients that have some chondromalacia. Um, they're having some knee pain. They want to stay as active as possible. And okay. in that group, we're using a product that's leukocyte reduced PRP. So we, we change our spin protocols of the centrifuge to select the right kind of product that we're after. Now, in tendon, so the other indications I think are lateral epicondylitis ten, or tennis elbow mm -hmm. and plantar fasciitis tend to respond pretty well to this treatment as well as glute medius tendinopathy, which I mean, as a PT, you know, it's just a yes. real challenge sometimes yeah. to get better. Yeah. Um, so that's where I've also had some successes um, with this. And in that case, we're using a leukocyte rich preparation. So we're leaving in the leukocytes, which create more of a pro-inflammatory response. The idea is they have more macrophages in there. Yeah. The macrophage is the cell that goes in and hopefully kind of chews up that disordered tendon tissue and then helps to signal the cells around it to create healing and lay down new collagen fibers in that area. So yeah. that's um, certainly what I'm doing the most of these days is PRP, probably for those kind of four indications that we just talked yeah. about. And then how do you explain PRP to like your patients? Like what's your simple way to say what it's doing? Yeah. I, I say all the stuff I just said, but yeah. in about 10 seconds. Uh, no, so, I mean, my, my, my quick spiel on PRP is yeah. that what we're doing is we're taking your blood, we're going to spin it down and take the platelets out of your blood. And the platelets yeah. are the cells that carry the chemical signals that tell the body to heal. Okay. Um, so we're going to separate those from the blood and then re-inject them into your body. Okay. That makes sense. And I think another perk of PRP is it almost, there's little like micro traumas usually, right? It's like, isn't there like a bunch of little injections that almost causes an inflammatory reaction just with the procedure itself? Is that still the way it's done or am I wrong there? Yeah. depends what you're treating. So if yeah. we're treating knee arthritis or a joint, it'll just uh -huh. be an interarticular injection, but for tendons, oh, okay. we'll often do what's called you're describing a percutaneous tenotomy where yeah. you go in and you actually needle the tendon and create some kind of new um, trauma or damage to hopefully get it to heal and inject the platelets along the way. Okay, okay. Um, do you think stem cells, if that's kind of the buzzword, will ever be approved by the FDA or do you think that's 
not going to be happening in the next five to 10 years. You know, I think there needs to be more safety data and efficacy yeah. data more than anything. I'd say maybe 10 years. Um, I think the the next thing on the horizon is probably exosome therapy, which I okay. am, am pretty excited about. Um, I'm not currently using because again, it lacks FDA clearance at this point, uh-huh. but um, you can think of the exosome as like all the good stuff from PRP and stem cells and mesochymal signaling cells put together. So what huh. the idea behind exosomes are is it takes those extracellular vesicles, which are these kind of fat soluble vesicles that actually contain those chemical signals that we're trying to reproduce by injecting PRP, BMAC or fat derived MSCs. And it packages those up and then you inject those directly. So you're actually injecting the mRNA or the chemical signals that are telling that cell to heal or differentiate. Now there's some certainly work to be done on this, knowing, you know, where the right site is, what type of vesicles you're injecting, where to harvest them from, how that process is done. But there's some preliminary data um, that's pretty exciting in that field. I'm not sure it's ready for prime time quite yet, but it is certainly being used. Okay. And then do you have clients who are like traveling for stem cell stuff, like going to Columbia or wherever you can go to get it? Is that a common thing? Yeah, I have a, I have a handful of people that are, you know, traveling out of the country for yeah. some of these treatments. I, yeah. um, I, I typically kind of caution against that. I'm just, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm sure it's like anything, it can be done well and can be done safely, but um, it's fairly unregulated, especially out of the country. So it's kind of hard yeah. to know what you're getting potentially. And there certainly potential for harm as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously people can come and talk to someone like yourself, but is there like references, websites, uh, something that people can refer to to always decipher some of this stuff on like PRPs versus whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I already forgot the one you just yeah. said. Exo. <laughs> <laughs> Exosome. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's um, the difficulty here is yeah. that a lot of the studies are very heterogeneous in the protocols that are used and the concentration of platelets for PRP or the system mm-hmm. that is used to process the, the blood itself. Um, there are some online resources. So the Biologics Association is one of those. There's okay. also some um, industry sponsored stuff out there that you have to be a little bit careful with, but um, some of the major specialty societies like AMSSM, American Medical Mm -hmm. Society of Sports Medicine, has some good data um, and some good patient facing resources as well. And then how do you set expectations for these people after the intervention? Do you have them, if they're an active person, ramp down activity for whatever, seven to 14 days and try to do some rehab-y stuff or what's like your post-intervention education for these people? Yeah, it depends what we're treating. Um, yeah. You know, let's say for for knee arthritis, um, mm-hmm. I'll usually have them try and be minimally weight-bearing for two to three days afterwards, maybe even with crutches, um, with the idea of trying to keep as much of those platelets inside the joint as possible, because every time you step on and kind of compress the synovium, you're introducing new fluid in there, which is kind of how the, the joint normally gets its nutrition and its um, supply of um, 
of blood flow and everything else. So if you kind of limit that, then theoretically, maybe you're keeping some of those platelets where they're going to release most of those signals. So uh, I'll typically start there and then have them gradually progress over two weeks to work on just range of motion exercises. I'll pretty much shut them down for about two weeks and then have them gradually progress back to activity between the two and four week mark with a goal of hopefully getting them back between four and six weeks to kind of pre-procedure level of activity. I usually set the expectation it's going to take anywhere between four and eight weeks for the treatment to take effect. So it's kind of like, you know, eating your vegetables. It's not something that works right away. It is a more of a long-term plan. Um, With tendons that that differs a little bit as far as when we decide to reload the tendon, Um, typically we'll shut someone down again for a period of time and then gradually start reloading them around the, you know, with um, just motion initially trying to regain full motion and then really saving eccentric exercises for about six to eight weeks after that. And I'll typically look at that tendon with ultrasound around the eight to 12 week mark and see if there's signs of healing on ultrasound. Sometimes that can be pretty early. And a lot of times people will be feeling better clinically before we'll see ultrasound evidence of healing. Okay. I was just going to ask, how are you tracking these things? Is the ultrasound the best way? Are you like measuring, I don't know, joint spacing on the knee or how do you like try to objectify or track if things are progressing? Yeah. For arthritis, I'm really only following symptoms um, yeah. and range of motion. So if I can help someone's symptoms and maybe they get a few more degrees of um, terminal extension and yeah. they feel better, that's really what I'm most interested in. Um, you know, my, my interest is getting that person feeling better regardless yeah. of what their ultrasound or imaging shows. Yeah, yeah. I think in tendons, it's um, a little bit more interesting to follow over time because we can see signs of clinical healing um, on and that tendon actually remodeling and again though you know if if someone feels great and their ultrasound still looks like it's not perfect i'm gonna still let them progress so i I typically don't hold people back based on their ultrasound if they're clinically feeling better um, unless i'm really concerned about you know the potential to go into a full tear or there's a significant mechanical problem that i'm worried about yeah yeah that makes sense and then do you educate on diet or what are your thoughts on diet? You know, like the common thing these days are like the inflammatory foods of sugar, dairy, gluten, you know, everybody has different sensitivities, but do you talk diet with people or what are your insights or views on how diet plays in the role of inflammation and maybe interacting with some of these interventions? I don't know if there's studies on mm-hmm. any of that. Yeah. So that's a huge topic. Um, yeah. and I think diet is kind of like talking religion with some people, you know, <laughs> or is, politics where it's like, whatever you say, you're going to offend half the people you're talking yep. to. Yep. Um, I, I think that, you know, diet is something I certainly try and approach in the context of overall health and in the context of, you know, these biologic treatments specifically, I'm typically just recommending, you know, that, overall anti-inflammatory diet. There's some, there's one small study showing type two collagen supplementation with low dose vitamin C Mm -hmm. when used 30 minutes prior to physical therapy has some benefit, maybe with tendon healing. So, you know, patients who are really trying to maximize every Avenue, I'll recommend that as well. Cause I feel like the downside for that is, is really low. Um, I'm typically avoiding or having them avoid any kind of high dose vitamin C or anti-inflammatories, because I do think that it probably suppresses inflammation in a way that's detrimental, not only to to training effect, but potentially to tendon healing. So um, I think 
dose, big dose polyphenols are probably beneficial in some ways, but more is not necessarily better. Yeah. And then I'm pushing most people um, towards eating just a, a plant-based healthy diet for the most part. You know, the the work that I'm doing with Wild Health, we focus uh-huh. on a genomics-based kind of personalized diet program where we can actually test your genetics and some lab tests looking oh, cool. at your tolerance for saturated fatty acids. If you're going to do well on a keto diet, what your risk of insulin resistance are kind of trying to figure out how to put all those pieces together to make more personalized diet recommendations. That's something that it just, it doesn't fit well into the normal clinical model no. to have that hour long conversation with each yeah. patient. So unfortunately I'm just not, I'm not really diving that deeply on um, my average clinic patients, but patients that are interested, I definitely try and educate a little bit more on. And I think, um, you know, diet is so complicated because there, everywhere you look, there's another study showing that it's like, oh, well, everyone should be eating keto. Everyone should be doing yeah, a paleo exactly. diet. No, everyone should yeah. be vegan. No, you shouldn't eat dairy or gluten. And the, the information is so vast that even as the physician, I feel like it is overwhelming to try and sort through what the right yeah. diet is. And I think at the end of the day, there's no one right diet for every person. It's a very personalized and individualized approach. So I, there's not, I don't come out and preach one thing for everyone, Yeah, uh, but I try and get people in general to focus on whole foods, plant-based, healthy foods, limiting any kind of processed food or simple sugars. Um, let's maybe talk through some cases and what you would kind of initially, I mean, it's so hard because this is subjective and an abstract, but what you would initially think would be maybe a good regenerative medicine intervention for them. And I think one we talked through is like the, uh, the 40 year old grade one, two, neo a that's having knee trouble but too early to have like a knee replacement and there's not like a bucket handle meniscal tear where they got to get rid of an entrapment is that the person you would what intervention would you recommend for that person so i think um you know starting with the discussion of what what are they currently doing is this a 40 year old sedentary guy who's working on his computer most of the day and is pretty happy with that or is a 40 year old ultra runner who wants to be you know crushing miles or someone kind of in between um the i think the treatment plan differs there depending on what their goals are as far as what they want to do um i think starting with looking at biomechanics is going to be huge so you know why do they have these chondral changes watching them walk seeing what their patellar alignment looks like seeing what their knee alignment looks like seeing if there's instability there that hasn't been addressed or dysfunction with the hips or weakness you know kind of um, superior in the kinetic chain and that's where you know i I really lean on guys like you to sit down and help me look at that and identify those areas and see if there's things we can improve on from there, I'll, you know, base it mostly depending on how their symptoms are. Typically, if they haven't tried a course of structured physical therapy and a little bit of rest and maybe some over-the-counter Tylenol, like that's a really good starting point yeah. for a lot of people. And I find that, you know, I don't tend to jump to regenerative treatment until someone has really maximized their biomechanics and tried a few other things first. Because there's a, a good chunk, I'd say probably 60 or 70% of people, that that's going to get them better to where they need to be. Now, if they come back and see me six to eight weeks down the road and they're still, like, they're not feeling like they're getting 
as much benefit or maybe they got 30 or 40 percent better with pt yeah. but they're not where they want to be then yep. we start talking more about other interventions at that point and uh, the case you're describing would be a really good a good case for prp so yeah. i'd probably um, talk with someone about that the risks and benefits of doing that a single steroid injection during an acute flare uh -huh. i think is a very reasonable plan but i think if you're looking at long-term benefit and preserving cartilage then that grade one two neoa is someone who there's some really good data there i think that would support the use of prp in that setting yeah. so i'd probably okay. steer them that direction are there cases where you're doing it on more of the younger athlete? I don't know, some of that complex tibial fracture that's not healing to kickstart it. Is there more of like the youth case yeah. that would utilize some of these techniques? Yeah, I, you know, I really try and steer clear of any kind of injection surgery, interventional yeah. treatments in younger athletes. Uh -huh. um, I, I find that a lot of the time, um, working on either their biomechanics or just addressing the imbalance between the amount of training they're doing, the amount of rest they're getting and nutritional problems yeah. is what really needs to happen. Um, and focusing on those isn't the easiest thing, but it's what's going to get them better. So I'll start there. Um, the data on PRP for fracture non-union is not great. So that's not yeah. something that's really being utilized a whole lot. Okay. Um, I, I've used it and training, um, you know, when you're working with elite yep. and college level athletes that were trying to return to play as quickly as possible for things like acute hamstring mm -hmm. tears, um, using PPP. So play the poor plasma is more studied in that, that setting, but for acute injury, um, the data there is not great, but if someone's really trying to maximize getting back as quickly as possible and their livelihood depends on them playing, yeah. then that's something that we could consider. But I, I try and really have a frank risk benefit discussion with the patient regarding yeah. uh, the limited data in that area. But yeah, yeah younger athletes, I, that's not something I'm reaching for first line. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I don't know if this is something you deal with that much, but is there any evidence or research regarding like spinal pathologies or like, let's say you have chronic disc herniations or you have that sloppy unstable disc is there regenerative techniques that people are using for those conditions yeah there definitely are i've got some partners who are more involved sure. in doing spine yeah um, regenerative treatments that's an area where i'm not um, as well versed but you can uh -huh. do interdiscal prp is something that has been studied there's also people that do prolotherapy which is dextrose yeah. injections um, with the idea of decreasing inflammation or depending on the concentration of dextrose potentially stabilizing ligaments and creating kind of some scar through that area um, but yeah i think si joint pathology is something i have uh -huh. had some success with with some of these regenerative treatments as well that have tried steroid injections and haven't improved um, but that's usually after uh, a kind of long course of other treatments that we're reaching for something like that. And have you found any success with like instability, meaning, I don't know, glenohumeral instability, I don't know, uh, ligamentous instability in the ankle, like are any of these regenerative techniques assisting with shortening of structures? Well, I mean, prolotherapy yeah, not... is maybe one you think of there, but Prolo would be most used yeah. in that setting because the dextrose would create some sclerosis of the um, the tendon itself theoretically. Yeah. 
um, you know, I've had some success with chronic AC joint instability uh-huh. as well as sternoclavicular joint instability responding pretty well to dextrose prolotherapy. Okay. Uh, the, the data there is fairly mixed. Um, as far as glenohumeral instability, that's a difficult problem to treat. Um, typically, if someone's a recurrent dislocator and they're younger, I'm generally yeah, recommending to talk it. with yeah. one of our surgeons and yeah. just get that thing fixed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and then... What about chronic state, uh, pain or like crips? Is that ever a case that you're going to, or is that yeah, a complex regional compl- pain yeah. syndrome? Yeah. So yeah, there's all sorts of great and interesting stuff around the path of physiology of CRPS. Yeah. Um, orthobiologics. I, I don't think have a huge role there. The, the exception would be something called the liftoff technique where you're doing kind of perineural prolotherapy or nerve hydrodissection using low dose dextrose. And it was pioneered by this physician in Europe where you go in kind of in the subcutaneous tissue and you're actually trying to kind of inject in the fat around that area to calm down these small nerve fibers. Um, So that has some improvement. I've had some great successes with neuropathic type pain, but typically for CRPS, there are some things that tend to work well. I mean, ketamine treatments tend to work really well for that. Um, Bisphosphonates have been studied, but that's a, again, a, a really challenging problem to treat and something that you know, we also lean on PT pretty heavily for, for yeah. desensitization and other therapeutic modalities that you guys are really good at. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, that's great. So yeah, my next question is a little bit more on a tangent, but I think something that you have a lot of experience in and uh, interested to hear your insights, but if you could scrap the medical system or throw insurance out of the window and just save money and all that isn't an issue what do you think is the most ideal like wellness pathway in regards to some of the stuff we've been talking about today with people? Do you think they should, again, if they could have regular blood work, should you be like some of the, what are the stuff you're doing for this group that you're talking about in regards to diet management or what would be your ideal health profile or things that people should be proactive about in regards to staying healthy and for the long haul? I mean, that's, that's a huge question. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, right now in medicine, we, we spend a, a ton of money to create health outcomes that are not as good as the rest of the world. And that, you know, I don't, I can't quote that data, but yeah. I know that we're, we're one of the top or the top in spending and nowhere near the top as far as objective outcome measures. Yeah. And my opinion on this is that we need to shift from, being a reactive system where we see disease and treat it to a more proactive and preventative system. So as opposed to seeing people that have type two diabetes and hypertension and just saying, well, it's part of getting older. And, you know, now we're going to put you on these five medicines for your high blood pressure and your diabetes. We need to be addressing these things when people are twenties and thirties. And that comes down to a whole range of interventions of things we should be doing. I mean, I think health education and health literacy is a huge part of that, whether that happens in schools or at the doctor's office or um, just in the media with teaching people what a, you know, a healthy diet and exercise program looks like. We also need to have realistic expectations for what health is. Um, so, you know, healthy is not a fitness model that you're seeing on Instagram. Yeah. Um, healthy looks like a lot of different things. And when we yeah. set the standards um, at a place where no one can ever achieve, then people are destined to fail and feel bad. Yeah. Um, I think we also need to kind of shift our focus on how we're, we're paid and incentivized in medicine. Cause right now we are incentivized to 
treat existing disease and perform procedures. And if we shift that to a preventative and outcomes-based approach, yeah. then that also just aligns the goals of creating a health or healthier population um, with the financial goals of the system. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of these come down to these huge social issues about access to healthy food, yeah. access to exercise, having enough, you know, leisure time to exercise. If you, you know, if you take a single mother who's working two minimum wage jobs and you tell her like, you, you need to eat more kale and shop organic and <laughs> yeah. exercise for 20 yeah. minutes a day. It's like, well, that's not, yeah. that is not a realistic thing to recommend. So, you know, this, is, this is a problem that um, has deep roots and it's going to take a lot of work to treat. I think yeah. there's more and more momentum shifting towards having some of these hard discussions like you're talking about, about lifestyle interventions and uh, making some of these small changes, even on an individual level. And we're starting to see, I think patients also become more interested in preventative rather than reactive yeah. medicine. And more and yeah. more, I'm seeing patients that are coming in because they want to avoid disease as opposed to treat something. Yeah, that that's awesome. And I think that's a, that's a really neat um, kind of piece to be a part of. And I'm excited to kind of continue doing that and hopefully watch that part of my practice grow. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's one of my day one spiels I give people is like, I want to be here for the long haul for you. And I don't want you to wait to come see me until you're in pain. I want you to stay out of pain. <laughs> if that means mm -hmm. you just get tune-ups every once in a while, or I can kind of do some virtual calls whatever it is. But um, it's a mindset that at least I'm experiencing people are getting, like you're saying, with more accustomed to and actually proactive about even if that costs them more money or whatever the scenario is. I think, I don't know, people are starting to get it, but that might be, I don't know where we're at and maybe it's not that way across the nation, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I it, yeah. I think it's picking yeah. up, picking up momentum. I think also, yeah. you know, you look that you're, if you're willing to spend, you know, $150 for a gym membership, a CrossFit yeah. gym a month, or you're yeah. going to take your car in for routine maintenance. Like, why are we not treating our, our bodies and our mental health in the same way? Like we yeah. should, we should put a premium on that. And we also know that those, that time and money that you invest in health and wellness now, you're going to spend less money on it down the road. Exactly. So that, that cost you're putting in now is going to come back tenfold when you're not on five medications yep. and treating your, your chronic medical problems in your sixties. Yeah. All right. La last question I ask everybody is uh, theme of the podcast is optimizing your capacity at any and all levels. What's uh, what are you working on in 2021, either personally or professionally or family life, or what's, what's something you're focusing on, on getting better this year? Yeah, I, I think I, I have many things that I'm always kind of trying to, to self-improve yeah. and biohack and focus yeah. on. Um, but, but for, for this year, I think, you know, mental health is probably going to be a big focus, hopefully um, yeah. working more on mindfulness, staying present. Um, and then also just kind of focusing on quality of work um, doing meaningful work and being very focused on it as opposed to doing a lot of work yeah. and applying that also to being in the gym and on, you know, on the bike, I like to cycle as well. So like, how yeah. can I, I maximize the amount of training that I put in um, without doing huge volume so I can be a father and a doctor and other things that I, yeah. I need to and want to be doing as well. Um, and then, you know, from work perspective, I think probably similar, you know, trying to stay engaged um, with each patient and trying to have those meaningful conversations, even when they're challenging and finding more avenues to bring up those hard questions and, and discuss those things with patients to work on overall health yeah. and how it plays into their orthopedic issue. In regards to mindfulness, is there 
something you're like a book you're reading? Are you trying to use like apps or anything or what, how, any strategies there? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got a, a pile of books that I've yeah. sorted through on that. Um, and then multiple apps I'm, I'm currently, you know, doing, I did Headspace for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, the Sam Harris waking up app I found to yeah. be really helpful. So okay. I really like that. Um, and I'm trying to kind of work through some of his courses. And I think I'm also getting more and more of my athletes um, plugged in with mindfulness coaches or a mindfulness program. Oh, cool. And I'm finding that it's really has huge benefits, especially during that injury recovery phase when someone's mentally struggling yeah. with injury, they're kind of struggling with that, their identity as an athlete and what this means. If, you know, if they can't run, then who are they and, yeah. and how do they cope with that? Um, so I think, you know, addressing that as part of their whole rehab program has been something that I've been recommending more and more and found to be really beneficial. Yeah. 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 I like it. Um, well, if people want to come see or get to learn more about your practice or anything, how can they find you? Like what's the name of the practice you're at or how can they get in touch with you? So I I work at Desert Orthopedics in Bend, Oregon, and you can just Google it and you'll find us online. And I'm primarily over at our West side office. And then you can also find me at wild health. Um, And again, if you just Google that and my name, Mark Edmund, you'll get some more information on the precision and medicine and health optimization practice and what we're doing there. Sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you. That was super informative. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and I know everybody's going to enjoy it. So uh, appreciate it. You bet, Nick. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Our goal is to help individuals like you learn practical knowledge you can apply today. If you want more information about how you can improve your capacity, visit our website at capacitypt.com. We have tons of info, including blogs, exercise videos, ebooks, and more. We're soon to offer services such as mentorship for clinicians and trainers, as well as online rehab and training. Stay tuned. If you like this episode, it would mean the world to us to leave a review. Again, our goal is to help and influence as many people as possible, and the best way to do that is through word of mouth. Leave us a review, tell your friends about it, shoot us an email with your feedback. We wish everybody the best. Expand your capacity.